Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. I'm Amanda Lippman, and this is Battleground, a podcast from The Recount. Today's guest is Christina Tinsun Ramirez, the executive director of Next Gen America, one of the leading national progressive youth voter mobilization organizations. I talked to Christina about why the youth vote, which is one of the most diverse voting groups that we've ever seen, is such an important piece of building and preserving a multiracial democracy, and how much effort is being put into making it harder for them to vote, especially in places like Christina's home state of Texas. We break down why you can't just funnel the young people into one-topic categories like you sometimes can do with older voters, and what most political campaigns get so wrong when it comes to connecting with and inspiring them to participate in politics at all, and honestly, what NextGen gets right. But before my conversation with Christina, I want to talk about Facebook. So on Monday of this week, as basically anyone who lives online is familiar Facebook, Instagram, WhatsApp, Ocular, if you use that, all went down for about six hours. These are not just places where we post photos and make fun of boomers. Facebook, WhatsApp, and Instagram are critical platforms for conducting business, arranging medical care, holding class, carrying out political campaigns, responding to emergencies, and so much more. WhatsApp in particular is used to send more than 100 billion messages a day. It's been downloaded more than 6 billion times since 2014, back when Facebook bought it. The apps combined control 70% of the messenger marketplace. Something like 2.76 billion people on average used at least one Facebook product each day this June. This is not a small company or a small product, and the worldwide outage proved that out. You know, as I record this, Francis Hagen, a whistleblower, is testifying in front of Congress about a number of issues Facebook knew they had, like Instagram <laughs> actively worsening teenage girls' mental health, a two-tier justice system, problems around mis- and disinformation, and so much more. What I hope Congress takes away from this hearing, as well as the outage earlier this week, is that it is time to break up Facebook. It is time to regulate it. It's time to treat it like the public utility that it is. It is as crucial to basic infrastructure and basic societal functioning as telephones or internet or electricity. It needs to be held accountable to someone other than the shareholders. And someone needs to be making decisions other than Mark Zuckerberg, who started this technology platform to rate whether girls were hot or not. It is such a problem and Congress has the ability to solve it or at least make some of it a little bit less shitty if they decide to. 
And there are ways in which social media companies can actually do good, not just in the broad sense, but for democracy specifically. You know, earlier this week, Snapchat launched an amazing partnership that Run for Something was thrilled to be a part of, helping young people run for office. Comparing that in contrast to Facebook's problems with dis and misinformation, with genocides, with violence, with inciting and giving people the ability to organize the riot on the Capitol, it is just so clear night and day that there is a way to run social media companies correctly, or at least morally and ethically, and then there's the Facebook way. With that, let's hear my conversation with Christina Zinsun Ramirez. Christina Zinsun Ramirez, Executive Director of NextGen America, welcome to Battleground. Thanks so much. I'm glad to be here. Let's start by giving us a little bit of the TLDR on what NextGen is and what you do. So NextGen America is the nation's largest youth voter mobilization organization. Last election alone, we helped mobilize one in nine young voters to the polls, which is, of course, now the largest and most diverse generation in American history. So there's a lot of power, a lot of potential, and we want to make sure that young people are able to exercise that power at the voting booth. How did you get involved? So I've spent the last um, 20 years doing progressive political organizing and work in Texas. And I feel like if you can make change in Texas, you can make it anywhere. And I was recruited to run for Senate against John Cornyn, our lesser known but much more powerful senator than Ted Cruz. And much more Uh, evil, practically. Yeah, he has a lot more power, right? Mm-hmm. It's like Ted Cruz is vehemently disliked, but does he wield the same power and influence that John Cornyn does? Not at all. Mm-hmm. And I was trying to figure out what I was going to do after that Senate run. I'd run as a progressive and was asked to apply for Next Gen. And it was just like a perfect fit of everything I love, which is political power building, doing it from a progressive lens and using the power and hope and imagination of young people to do that. So I am admittedly a bit of a next-gen fangirl. I think the work the organization does has been game-changing. It's really innovative. It's really critical (laughs) for Democrats to win elections. I will say that one of the things that's always kind of alarmed me about it is the funding model and that it has been primarily funded by Tom Steyer. I'm wondering how his sort of primary focus and now the effort to expand it has affected the organization's priorities. You know, I was telling another friend of mine because I come from progressive politics where we always question like how the ultra wealthy operate and the level of influence, especially in politics. And he was like, well, we all work for billionaires if you trace it backwards. (laughs) But at the same time, I think what's important about Tom is how he operates. He really does believe in racial justice. He believes in economic justice. He believes deeply in taxing the rich, their fair share. And you can see that run in the policies and who the voice of NextGen is. Like, we are an explicitly progressive organization that calls out for the ultra-rich to be taxed to the portion that they should be. We are an organization that calls out that the infrastructure plan is not Mm -hmm. big enough to tackle climate change. Mm -hmm. The programming of what we do and how we do it is decided by young people. And that's incredibly powerful. NextGen was originally founded with a climate focus. Can you talk about the transition from climate to youth and why we got there? Yeah, so that was the other reason of trying to engage around young people. NextGen was originally focused on just mobilizing broadly the electorate around climate Mm -hmm. change. But in that process, it was very clear that young people were always the folks that said climate change is one of their top issues. You know, if you look at the patterns in voting of young people, there's a lot of similarities with older people as far as what they say they care about. They always care top issue about the economy and jobs. 
education. But where young people differ is in their top four issues, you will also see racial justice Mm -hmm. and you will see climate change because we really are looking at what our future will look like in the face of a climate catastrophe. And NextGen recognized in its evolution that when you go on to organize young people, they are not siloed into caring about one issue. They are intersectional. And also that young people really see that we face kind of three crises simultaneously. We face a climate catastrophe, a democracy in decline, and just Mm -hmm. grotesque income inequality. And that's why for the first time in American history, young people believe that they will be worse off than their parents. And it's true. And we believe that part of the way that you change that is by electing people and building a government that truly represents ordinary Americans. And that next gen, we're not just about trying to make change at the margins. We're trying to change the status quo for young people because that's what they need and want. Let's define our terms here. Who do we mean as young people? So next gen classifies young voters as 18 to 35. So anybody in those categories. And I think for me, part of my job at NextGen also is in our field program. So we organize people online. We ran the country's largest social media influencer program last election. We have 25,000 volunteers that are part of our distributed organizing team. And we go to college campuses across the country and register and mobilize voters for each election. And in some of the states we're in, I think this is a challenge for the entire left, and this is something Mm -hmm. we're trying to do at NextGen, is that 60% of Americans over the age of 25 have no college degree. Mm -hmm. So if we are just organizing young people on college campuses, we're missing big swaths of the electorate and population. So that's part of what we're working on figuring out and running experiments this coming election, is how to reach and engage young people that are not on college campuses. And the other part I would say about that is also young families. I think people think of young person and they just think of like a kid on a college campus. And really, there are a lot of young people that also have young kids and are working. And so all of those folks fall into our age category. Do you have a theory of the case on how to reach people without college degrees? Most of those folks are working. Mm -hmm. Some of them are in trade schools. And then a lot of them are taking care of their kids. So I think there's an approach to dividing up the population based on kids, no kids. I have a four-year-old little boy. And like, if you go to the splash pad in the summer, it is just filled with like young, young parents. If you go to the YMCA, if you go to the library, like these are places where people are taking their kids or the soccer fields. They're just filled with young families. And then there's also community and workplace models that are also deeply rooted in people's cultures. So, you know, I spent a long time organizing young people in the Latino community. And one program we did was every year in Texas, 50,000 young 15-year-old girls do quinceañeras, which are Mm -hmm. sweet 15 parties. I mean, people need to be thinking of the scale of a wedding when they think Mm -hmm. of a quinceañera, only there's no groom. It's all about the girl and it's all about her coming of age. And it's about your transition from girlhood to duties towards your community as a woman. And so we think one of those things about becoming a woman should also be about voting and protecting and honoring your family and community through your power of your vote. So we were going into quinceañeras and girls would make speeches as part of a new tradition in quinceañeras where they would get up and say, this is why I'm going to vote when I turn 18. And then we would have a photo booth and ask them to pledge to vote. And when that girl and her friends that were 15 turned 18, they get a text that says, happy birthday, now you're eligible to vote, here's how you can register. So there's really great cultural ways that lift up certain communities as well and are integrated and don't feel like something 
foreign to them, but that can become also cultural traditions that just exist broadly in these spaces that are second to church, the best way to reach certain communities. Your distinction between people with kids versus not and people with college degrees versus not, you know, within 18 to 35, it's sort of assumed progressive. But I think when you start to break it down within those models, that gets a little bit more complicated. Can you lay that out a little? So we had the highest youth voter turnout last election. The vast majority voted for Biden around 60 percent. But it really breaks down also based on race and then college, no college are kind of the big distinguishers. Um, And part of that has to do with the organizing and the message that progressives utilize as far as how they campaign. But based on race, right, there are big differences between young Latinos and African-Americans and white young people. You know, in my home state of Texas, for example, the majority of young white folks in that age group voted for Trump. Mm. Overwhelmingly, young brown and black folks voted for Biden by 73% and up. So for us, it's really critical to one, know our audience, know their issues. But then some of the other work I think that's important is to go speak to young white folks as well and talk to them about what Democrats stand for. You know, if we're not going out and speaking to young white folks, then the other side is. And so I think that's also where NextGen is unique as we really are trying to figure out What is the best message? Who are the best messengers to reach young people? And young people are unique and different than older voters, not only in their issues, but they're unique and different in that it's not enough to say that the Republican Party is worse Mm -hmm. than the Democratic Party. Young people, while they are overwhelmingly progressive, they care deeply about the issues and they're not just blind cheerleaders for the Democratic Party either. And so we spent a lot of time this last election just talking to young people about their power, about the change they can make, and not just that one party is worse or better than the other. Battleground needs to take a short break. Then we'll be back with more from Christina Tinsoon Ramirez. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves. Feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Welcome back to Battleground. We are talking to Christina Tinsun Ramirez from Next Gen America. I just think one of the things that sets young voters apart, sort of regardless of college degree versus not, family or not, even race or not, is that young voters can really smell bullshit. Mm-hmm. Um, and this is one of the things that I think has led some Democratic politicians astray here. They aren't able to make an authentic sounding case 
to them. Yeah. You know, I do a lot of work with young people on the other side of the fence, getting them to run for office. And when I talk about the work I do on the internet, I always, my benches just get filled. People be like, well, they don't vote. Young people don't vote. It's like, we, we haven't tried. For a lot of them, we haven't tried and we haven't given them something to vote for. And I think it becomes a real chicken and the egg Mm -hmm. problem. Can you explain that chicken and the egg sort of ecosystem? Yeah, I mean, I think that that's a really good point. It's very cyclical. So most at Nexion, we target and speak to young people that probably no campaign or party would go talk Mm -hmm. to because they have that theory like, oh, they don't turn out. And it's that cyclical problem of, well, they don't turn out, so we don't want to spend money on them because we need to spend money on these other populations. But young people will say, well, no one, no campaign came and talked to me. I don't actually know who's running or what they stand for. And so round and round we go. And that's where NextGen tries to intersect and disrupt that is to say, no, young people will vote. They do care. You have to speak to them about what they care about. And then just do the simple thing you would do with any other voter, which is invest time and energy connecting with them. And I think that we've proven in 2020, we had the highest youth voter turnout. It was really critical for Biden's win. And then the question becomes, 22 is around the corner. I don't think Democrats have the excuse anymore that young people don't vote because they turned out and voted. So if they don't invest in them, it's to their own peril. And I I want to actually like really articulate this because I'm not sure all of our listeners realize this. For most campaigns, the way you decide who's in your turnout universe, the people you're going to talk to this election cycle to get them to show up at the polls is by looking at previous voter history. And we know that voting is a habit. The most likely voter in 2022 is the person who voted in 2020 and in 2018 and in 16 and 14 in the past. So if a young person, maybe, you know, an 18 year old didn't vote in their first election in 2020, for whatever reason, they're less likely to be talked to by a campaign in 2022, and then even less likely to be talked to in a campaign in 2024. And it is absolutely tautological and often a self-fulfilling prophecy. And actually, I would love for you to talk about the the value of the investment in youth outreach is that when you create a voter, it's often very expensive, but then the payoff yields dividends for decades. Have you guys measured the long-term investment of this work? I mean, what we've seen is that when you get young people, like the people that we have, so you know, we've registered 1.4 million people. Then we have what we call like our next gen community, people that we interact with on a regular basis. So right now we're keeping in contact with millions of young voters and telling them this is why your vote mattered. And we see a 13 percent margin jump in those people that turn out compared to the people that aren't part of our next gen community. If you stay in contact, tell them why their vote matters. They turn out. And then for young people that are able to vote in two cycles, then they become regular voters Mm -hmm. and lifetime progressive voters. And the other thing that data is now showing, you know, the normal train of thought is that or the common train of thought is that traditionally young people just get more conservative as they get older and they can't be counted on either. But what we're seeing with older millennials is they break that, Mm -hmm. that they are staying very progressive And so this young, diverse generation that's coming of age that, again, is the largest voting bloc, if progressives go and win them, they're going to probably win them for a lifetime. Yep. You know, as a Latina, as a child of immigrants, I for a long time didn't feel like the Democratic Party was Mm. necessarily my party either. I felt like my community and my family was a political football and we still have a ways to go um, as certain border policies and things go. But overall, The Democratic Party is not saying that they're not calling our communities and families illegal aliens anymore. 
They're not saying we don't have a role or place in this country. And there is a broad recognition that we have built a system that has been willing to accept undocumented labor, um, but not their full humanity and that Mm. that's wrong and it's un-American and that most people don't want that system and that it also hurts American-born workers. And we've also come a long way as a party on criminal justice reform. And if we think back to the 90s and where the Democratic Party was on criminal justice, it's a long way. And lastly, on LGBTQ equality, it's a very different day than it was a while back. And now we're at the next place of where the party is finally honoring where it needs to be, I think, broadly, except two senators that are holding everything up, Mm -hmm. is that the party has to be for the working class and middle class families. And that means taxing the rich. It means raising the minimum wage. It means supporting unions. It means economic justice broadly. We had a really interesting conversation with Charlotte Alter a couple months ago about the way in which the moment in which you sort of become politically aware, like your 17, 18, 19 year old moment really informs the way that you understand politics. My first election I could vote in was in 2008. Uh, it was for Obama's first race. And I, when I think about like how between, you know, 9-11 to 2008, the way in which that really informs how I understand what a politician should be and how politics could feel is really meaningful. Do you notice a difference between the people for whom 2016 was their first election versus 2018 versus 2020 versus the folks who are turning 18 now and maybe the protests or the pandemic are really their political awakening? Yeah, we've definitely seen especially young people influenced by the Black Lives Matter movement Mm. that racial justice has surged to the top of their issues, top three, top four, depending on what you're looking at, and that that was previously not the case. And again, that's really unique to young people. It's not in other generational voting blocks, top categories or issues. And then what we also saw from 2016 to 2020, I think that there is a shift amongst progressives about understanding the importance of electoral change. Mm -hmm. I think for a long time, the left in this country, there was a portion of the left that would say both parties are the same. It doesn't matter. And also in 2016, you know, you had 10% of young voters vote third party when it was Hillary versus Trump. And you didn't see those same numbers. I think those numbers were cut in half Mm -hmm. in 2020. And so there are big shifts in recognition that both parties are not the same. It doesn't mean the Democrats are perfect, but young people see that Republicans are offering them nothing to address Mm -hmm. their pain and what they're worried about for their future and that Democrats, they can push and mold. And the last thing I would say is I think there's two ways you drive electoral change. There's the power of institution and the power of inspiration. So the power of Mm -hmm. institution is if we talk to this many voters this many times, we can roughly estimate that this percentage will come out to vote. And that is a critical power. It's quantifiable. It's measurable. And we need that kind of power. But then there's the power of inspiration, which is the power of storytelling, of a clear villain, a clear hero. And people need to be able to associate themselves with those heroes. And I think that as Congress and particularly has welcomed a new class of diverse women of color, AOC, Ayanna Presley, Rashida Tlaib, and many others that are out championing and look like the future of our country. Young people feel inspired to believe in the political process because they are there. Let's take a quick break, but more of my conversation with Christina Tsinsun Ramirez when we return. 
And we're back with Christina Tsimsun Ramirez from Next Gen America. Oh, wait. Hold on a second. Sadie, come here. Or ignore me. Um, apologies for my So as we are having this conversation, Christina, um, Congress has yet to sign a or pass the reconciliation bill. They have yet to pass the infrastructure bill. That could change between when we talk now and when this episode airs. But at this particular moment, watching Democrats negotiate with themselves, do you just feel yourself like having a little bit of a rage blackout? I I mean, I do. It makes me crazy, especially when we know how many young people were inspired in 2020 to show up specifically so that Congress could deliver. How do you feel about this? I mean, I think it's hard on two levels. One is just like the logic of it is obscene and is so offensive for, look, like Manchin represents one of the poorest states in the Mm -hmm. entire country. And the components that he wants to take out before we talk about climate, just like the economic components that he wants to take out to totally gut a social safety net, which would be transformative, particularly for poor and working poor folks a.k.a. the majority of his state's population, it just shows you that at the end of the day, if he is unwilling to fund universal child care, universal pre-K, just shoring up core components that working families need, then it just shows that he's not even working in the best interest of the people of his state. So he's just working for the ultra wealthy and big corporations that don't want to be taxed or pay for anything and leech off of the rest of us. So I think on that end is just totally infuriating. Mm -hmm. And I feel like the people of West Virginia should be outraged. And then on climate, you know, he's trying to use his position to be able to negotiate and decide what the core components of climate are, even though no senator is more influenced by the fossil fuel industry or the coal industry than him. And I wish they thought more about legacy than Mm -hmm. power, because power ends. Legacy lives on forever. And his legacy will be one that took our country and the planet into a suicidal future. And for young people across the country, I think most people see that and are just outraged that this one senator can't even think about the future of his own grandchildren. You know, does that not even matter to you? Because it sure matters to me as a mom. I mean, I can't even imagine they're thinking about power either, because the unwillingness to kill the filibuster and then pass voting rights legislation means that they are almost definitely going to lose the majority in 2022, if not 2024, which means Joe Manchin won't even have any leverage to engage in. And I I do want to nail down on the voting rights legislation piece, too, because it is specifically targeting young people in states like Georgia and Texas. This is legislation specifically meant to make it harder for 18 to 24-year-olds, for especially young people of color who are often more transient, to show up at the polls. They're not thinking about power or legacy. It's infuriating. <laughs> yeah, I feel. But I, mean, I feel like they think about power for themselves. I don't sure. think they care about like governing power. They care about like power and centering of their own voice in the news cycle. But you're right on the voting rights legislation. You know, we had our Democratic delegation leave the state courageously and go to Washington mm-hmm. to say, look, this is the courage and the extreme nature of how we have to act to defend the basic right to vote in our state. And in Texas and in Arizona and Georgia, you're also talking about states with huge racial generation gaps. So yeah. these are some of the states where the 
younger population is much blacker, browner API than the older population. And so it's not a coincidence that in Texas, where we went from nearly dead last in youth voter turnout to number one in youth voter turnout last election, that then you see sweeping legislation like this. Um, you know, at NextGen, we understand that the voter suppression bills that we see sweeping the country are attacking race plus generation mm-hmm. and specifically the power of young people of color that really, you know, if you look at their voting patterns, they're sending a very clear message to Republicans. You aren't offering on this anything for our lives, for our needs, for the pain we suffer every day. And we see that Democrats are at least willing to try. So we're going to go with them. Republicans could make the choice to actually address young people's needs, but instead, and young people of color's needs. Instead, they're just trying to rig all the rules in their favor. Um, Let's talk more about young people of color. Your family is both Mexican and Irish, which is to say like very quintessentially American. And (laughs) And very Texan. (laughs) Very Texan. And you, I think, have focused a lot of your work on young Latinos, specifically in Texas. Latinos are actually a very young group. The average age is, what, 30? Yeah, no, it's actually amazing. So the most common age for white Americans I think it's 55 for African-Americans mm-hmm. is 27 and for Latinos, it's 11 across Whoa. the country. Yeah. So we're super it's young. young. Yeah. And, you know, the one of the big topics of conversation around Latinos within the electoral context is that like Trump is winning Latinos, Republicans are winning Latinos. Is that true generationally? Uh, no. Uh, <laughs> so, I mean, I was just in South Texas, which everyone wrote about the Latino vote in Florida and they wrote about the Latino vote in South Texas So in Texas, Biden won, I think the number was 73 percent of the Latino vote under age 30. Um, And then, of course, hands down during the Democratic primary, like Bernie swept the youth Mm -hmm. Latino vote. The reason he swept the youth Latino vote is because he put time and money Mm -hmm. into Mm -hmm. reaching the Latino population around the issues that they care about. Healthcare, raising the minimum wage, canceling student debt. These are big issues in a community where we are the least likely to have health care, the most likely to make under $15 an hour, <laughs> and, and the least likely to go to college So because we feel like we can't afford it. So I think all that does prove is in South Texas, the Latino population are economic populace. And so if the Republican Party is spending time and money in organizing Latino voters, many of who are older, but are turning out. I think there's two ways to read the Latino vote. I think if you read the press, they will paint Latino voters as not monolithic and thus Democrats can't really count on them anyway. And so, like, why bother, essentially? The way I read it is the Latino vote is not monolithic. They're going to vote for who reaches them first with the message that addresses their pain most acutely. So Democrats have a choice. Do they go invest the time and energy with the right message to reach those populations or not. Do you think it's candidate specific? It can be. I mean, I think you always need a candidate to deliver a message, right? I think that that's critical. But I generally think people need to understand the Latino population more broadly. So I think Democrats generally tend to talk to Latinos only about immigration. Mm. And they think that is the Latino message. And it is true that it will usually be in like our top three issues. But at the same time, particularly in Texas, we are a community where many of us are newly arrived to this country. And then many of us were here before the United States was even constructed as a construct. (laughs) So like, um, you need to understand that. And so if you're in Houston or Dallas, it totally makes sense to talk about immigration. 
But if you're in South Texas or San Antonio, you want to be talking about healthcare, about jobs and education. Those are the critical issues for the Latino community. You know, I think with white voters, no one ever says this is like the white people's issue. But yet we do that with black and brown voters. There's always a conversation like, oh, we have to nominate a Latino in order to get Latino voters to show up. And I often think that's a bit reductive (laughs) in the same way that like it's not that a young person candidate is more likely to inspire young voters. It's that they have relevant issues. Their campaign staff is more fluent because it's made up of their friends and family. Like they're hiring young people because that's who they know. It is. It's not just that it's a young person on the ballot. It's the network effect of that young person's sort of reach approach viewpoint. Is the same true when you break it down by race? I think if you look at how well Bernie Sanders did, if if we're just talking about Latino voters, if you look at how well Bernie doesn't speak Spanish, (laughs) Bernie's not Latino and Bernie's not young. (laughs) Yeah. You know, but he did well because he put time and money and then he hired really qualified Latino staff and gave them budgets and said, I mean, he had a lot of money compared to a lot of other candidates, Mm -hmm. but he gave them sizable portions and said, go experiment And I trust you to make the decisions about your community. If you look at how much they spent on the Latino vote in particular in like California and Mm -hmm. Nevada and in Texas, it wasn't an afterthought. It was a core part of the strategy from the beginning. And that made a difference for them. Let's talk a little bit more about the tactics and organizing. What is the strategy that makes reaching young voters different than maybe reaching baby boomers, older generations? Yeah. So, you know, I'm sitting here, I've got like my cell phone next to me, um, like pinging every two seconds with people (laughs) texting me and notifications of different apps I'm on and things like that. And the best way is always in person to reach people. But Mm -hmm. most young people are also reachable by their phones on social media. We have come up with a host of ways to organize young people online. So, just so people understand, like last election, we had a whole team that just built out the largest influencer program in the country that any campaign ran. So can you explain that a little more? I loved this program. I don't think my mom would have understood it, but it's really interesting. You know, I think people think an influencer program is like, you know, Selena Gomez, but actually the best influencers are people in local communities that have 20 to 40,000 followers that people know and follow and feel like a personal connection with and live in those communities. And so we built out a program of close to, it was like ended up being like 1800 uh, social media influencers, micro influencers, and asked them to share with their followers about the election and the power of their vote and do that in their own authentic voice. We didn't give Mm -hmm. them scripts and say, you have to say this. And we also looked for unusual suspects, not people that were known for talking about politics like people that were into hair and makeup and had followers that were into hair and makeup, but maybe not super political people. Like there was in Wisconsin, this pack of Huskies that's nothing but like Husky photos that were super popular. So the Huskies got dressed to go to the election and talk about what they cared about. And the level of engagement was so, so high. So we had broader reach than Fox News and the level of engagement for campaigns wanting to do paid advertisement cost three and a half times less than paid Mm. advertisement for the engagement we got. And this coming election, we're going to be measuring, well, what does that actually mean in vote impact and turnout, not just engagement? But we saw it was super cost effective, far reach, and that it's the best way to reach young people. And then the other thing that we did is we had people organizing on Twitch. 
we had volunteers organizing an animal farm and talking to other people while they were playing games online about the election and if they were voting, if they had the information. And all of those ways are the ways that we reach young people in addition to texting them and and um, talking them through traditional digital ads. But having a team of 25,000 volunteers and a team of influencers that can authentically deliver their own message to other young people, it's just organizing what we would do in person, but online. And I think that the thing that makes fiction unique and able to do it is that you exist in perpetuity, ideally. And you have that scale year round, which most organizations do not have. Yeah, I think that that's really critical for organizing, especially young people, Mm -hmm. is you have to talk to them about why their vote matters and stay engaged with them. You can't just come around election cycle to election cycle. And Next Gen, of course, is in a unique position that it's been able to do that. But we're also trying to build out and do that to greater scale, even though we are the organization that's done it to the greatest scale because of our founder and because of other donors that stepped up, really given the size and population and projected growth of young voters, we should be even larger than we are. And the entire youth civic engagement sector should be much larger than we are. Dang it. What would the country look like politically, legislatively? What what would it look like if young people turned out at the rates you hope they would? I'm going to talk about my home state and then we can project that nationally. So, you know, I think Texas is a really good example of what minority rule looks like of just how extreme and divisive it is and what it would look like for the rest of the country. Not only have we had all these voter suppression bills, the most recent abortion ban, just like on every issue that you could possibly imagine, just it feels like we went 40 years back almost Mm -hmm. overnight on many, many issues. And at the same time, we are the third youngest state in the country. Only Utah and Alaska are younger One in three eligible voters is under the age of 30 in our state. And if politicians actually had to answer to the will of those voters in Texas, we would be leading on tackling climate change because no state can produce more solar or wind energy than Texas. The minimum wage would be a minimum of $15 an hour. Marijuana would be legal. We would have near universal health care. And that's just some of the issues where Texas would be a very, very different place. And so as a country, when we look at the crises that not just young people face, but all people face, and I think overall are just appalled by, I think even if it's, you know, I don't think we should see it as right versus left, but top versus bottom, most people are outraged by just what seems like grotesque income inequality in a system that only works for the ultra rich. We also see a democracy in decline because of that. And facing down the consequences of climate change that are growing very real by the day for people across the country. That level of crisis, that level of just broad, deep pain that is experienced by the millions requires the imagination and boldness of young people that are unwilling to accept small measures and steps when the crisis demands big leaps and us jumping over hurdles. Amazing. Christina Edson Ramirez, Executive Director of NextGen, thank you for taking the time to talk. Thanks so much. It's great to be here. Battleground is a podcast from The Recount. If you enjoyed this episode, give us a five-star rating and an excellent review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. 
Aaliyah Jackson and David Wilson engineered this podcast. Jessica Williams is our associate producer. Tara Adovino is our producer and story editor. And Christian Castro-Rossell is our executive producer. 